How would you like to be on trial for your faith? If you were being cross-examined for what you believe, I wonder if you would fare like Joanne White did in the Blount County, Tennessee courtroom of Judge W. Dale Young. I read a story this summer in the July issue of Liberty Magazine, and I was appalled. It was a final divorce hearing involving the custody of her two teenage children. Joanne is a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. Let me read to you from that court hearing. This is a piece by Celeste Perino-Walker. Almost most Christians know in the back of their mind that it's possible they'll be called on the stand and asked to defend their beliefs. Few of them actually believe it will really happen, and even fewer go through the actual experience as Joanne White did. She was asked about her religious beliefs extensively. Listen. I knew that they were going to do this, White says, but I didn't know how hard it was going to be. I was told not much religion goes in the courtroom. But between them, Judge Young and Craig Garrett, her ex-husband's attorney, asked her questions about subjects including Mark of the Beast, the Fourth Commandment, the Reformers. Say, what do you know about the Reformers? Tell us about the Reformers. The Sabbath, changing from Saturday to Sunday. The Papacy, worship, the seal of God, recognizing the Sabbath, keeping it holy. Though he protested many times, her own attorney, Kevin Shepard, was unable to deter the line of questioning. Now, here's from the actual court transcripts. Mr. Shepard, that's her attorney speaking now. Your Honor, I'm going to object. I feel like the court is attacking my client's religious beliefs. The court, that would be his honor. I'm not attacking anybody. I just want to understand what she's talking about. They just kept on, says White. He, Judge Young, didn't tell Craig Garrett to stop the line of questioning. He told Kevin Shepard to basically, her attorney, sit down. I was up there helpless. Kevin couldn't help me. And he, Judge Young, did not tell Craig Garrett to be quiet. He just kept asking me questions. The transcript reads further. The court, the judge speaking again. Well, I'd like to understand it. I really would. And I'm not trying to harp on you or put you in a box, but you've got to tell me. You've got to explain it to me. Why were her religious beliefs even an issue? Well, that's what bothered me, says Shepard, her attorney. It really, was a, it really wasn't an issue. And my concern was that Joanne really felt mocked. You could tell by watching her on the stand that she was feeling very uncomfortable. And I think she truly felt that she was being attacked. The irony of it is that although the case was not about religion at all, there was nevertheless, it nevertheless was the main topic of cross-examination. Final line. Says Joanne White, I gave an hour-long Bible study course to a judge in a courtroom where church and state are supposed to be separated. That's the bottom line. End quote. How would you like to have been in that hot seat, huh? Maybe someday you will. In fact, the, the, the biblical line that is the premise, the logical premise for this new series called Primetime suggests that, in fact, one day you will. I want you to take a look at that line. First Peter. Find First Peter in your Bible. I don't want you to read it on the screen. You've got to read this in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, grab the pew Bible in front of you. First Peter. Chapter 3. One line. 
This is the rationale for why you and I are plunging into this primetime series. We're not taking this stuff lightly. One line, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Cut right to the heart of verse 15. Do you see these words there? Verse 15, 1 Peter 3. By the way, it's page 816 in the Pew Bible. If you're looking on in the Pew Bible. Right in the middle of that verse, here comes the line. Always be ready to give a defense. There's a courtroom word. Always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. You know how Peter knows that that, in fact, has to be true? Because of his own bitter experience. That's why. He learned the hard way. You better be ready with an answer. When he's, That little girl sitting on the other side of the bonfire that dark night, she looks through the orange shadows. She says, hey, boy, haven't I seen you before? Aren't you a follower of that man on trial, Jesus of Nazareth? Peter was not ready with an answer for the reason of the hope that is within him. He didn't know what to say. And then we know the tragic meltdown that took place to cover up. The glorious truth about failure is that you can learn from it. And Peter learned. And now he tells us, hey, 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 when you're in the witness stand, be ready. Be ready to give a defense. The hope that is inside of you. You're in a classroom? Raise your hand. You're in a boardroom? Mr. Chair, I have something to say. You're in a court of law? You're on the basketball court. It doesn't matter where you are. Just be ready 24-7 to give a defense. That's Peter's point. And right now, with your permission, for the defense that you will make, I want to place in your hands a single tool, a single truth. You get this straight, and you will. A single truth that nobody, and I mean nobody, will ever, even in a court of law, be able to refute Or countermand what you're saying. A single strategic tool in your hand. You see, this series, Primetime, we set it all up talking about how important young adults are are in God's end time strategy. We've moved now past the setup. We are plunging now into the how-to. The rest of this series is how-to. Don't miss coming up soon. Two parts. How How to testify to an atheist. How to reach an atheist with the gospel of Christ. So in order to plunge into this particular how-to, we've got to go to the book of Acts again because that's our textbook for this series. So find Acts chapter 9. Incredible story. Uh, this has to be one of the great, great, great stories of all Christianity. Not as great as Calvary. Oh, not as great as Calvary. But here's the effect of Calvary. Take a look at this. Acts chapter 9. I'm in the today's New International Version. You follow along whatever translation you brought with you. Acts chapter 9, we're going to find out what this tool is. You're going to see it wielded skillfully, and you're going to realize, I can do that too. All right, Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Hey, who's this Saul guy? You know, a lot of the, the, the problem with most of us, when we see the word Saul, because we know he's going to eventually become Paul, we imagine him to be an old man right here. He is not an old man right now. In fact, I need to show you that, in fact, he's your age. He is a young adult. Watch this. You've got to skip chapter 8. Go back to the end of chapter 7. Because at the end of chapter 7, a trial has been brought to its rump court conclusion. A, another young adult. You say, Dwight, how do we know the other young adult is a young adult? Ah, because... It is clear from Acts 6, 7, and 8. You, you weave these three chapters together. It is clear that the young adult who's on trial for his faith, an Hellenized Jew who has become a Christian, his name is Stephen. 
Stephen has already met this Saul. Oh, they met all right. In Acts chapter 6, Stephen goes into a Cilician synagogue in Jerusalem. Saul is from Tarsus of Cilicia. He goes into a Cilician synagogue and he debates the brightest minds that synagogue has to offer. And he, I was going to say whoops them. That doesn't sound like a very spiritual term. He beat them. The record is clear. They could not answer his debating strategy. He beat Saul. And Saul is smarting from that public humiliation. And the very next verse in Acts 6 says, so immediately they set about to trump up false charges. You can be certain that Saul is behind the court scene in Acts chapter 7. Now, there was no, Stephen knew this is no hearing. I'm not going to get a jury's vote. This is the Sanhedrin and it's over for me. And sure enough, look at verse 57. This is the tail end of uh, Acts 7, verse 57. At this, because he just said, I see Jesus standing beside the eternal God on the throne of the universe. At this, verse 57, the court, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at Stephen. They dragged him out of the city and they began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. He won't touch a stone. He set this whole thing up. He's just there to make sure it happens. And all the coats, because you get sweaty when you're trying to stone somebody to death. All the coats are at the feet of a young. Did you see that? Young man. He's a young adult. He's your age. Maybe late 20s. Stephen is young. Saul is standing there with the coats heaped at his feet. And he's watching them kill a man. I have never seen somebody kill a man. But I only can imagine that once you see someone kill a human being, you will never forget it for the rest of your life. Life. The young adult is being stoned while the other watches. Who wins now, Stephen? Who wins now? And so Stephen, verse 60, he falls to his knees. I'll well, pick it up in verse 59. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Saul is here in this whole, this whole testimony. And when he fell to his knees, here it is, verse 60. Then he fell to his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. By the way, just take note that in the Bible, when you die, you don't go to heaven. You don't go to hell. You go to sleep. This is the Bible truth. You go to sleep. He fell asleep. Ah, but that's not over. And Saul approved of their killing him. This has been a setup from the beginning. I got rid of him. Blood on the stones. The man's dead, but something happens in the heart of one who represses the memory. And the only way to deal with a repressed memory is to, in fury, distract your own attention. And that's precisely what he does. And on that day, look at this. 8 verse 1, and on that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Verse 2, godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul... Still driven by this memory, Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. That's the background. He's a young man. Chapter 9 now, one of the greatest stories in history. He's a young man. Not an old man. He's a young man. All right, back to chapter 9. Verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out. The Semitic mind associates anger with breath. 
And by the way, that's absolutely true. The next time you see somebody angry in front of you, you watch. Their nostrils will flare. They will begin to breathe shallowly. When you're mad, it happens the same way to you. That's just, you can't help it. It's a, it is a psychosomatic reaction to anger. The Semitic mind, breathing out, means he's furious. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He's not content with Stephen's blood. He's not content with Jerusalem's blood. And so he went to the high priest. And verse 2, he asked the high priest for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found anyone there who belonged to the way. That's what they were calling this new Christian movement. The way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So if he found anybody in Damascus. By the way, Damascus, the oldest existing city on earth. Continuously existing. It still exists today. Oldest city on earth. Now, it's older than Cairo, older than Jerusalem, Damascus. So he says, let me go up to Damascus. Let me have papers that allow me to arrest anybody belonging to the way, whether men or women. Desperation comes when you go for women and children. You are desperate. And that's what's happening here. That he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Look at verse 3. As he neared Damascus on his journey. All right. The most famous conversion story in history. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Have you ever seen those old black and white pictures of the the A-bomb Hiroshima or or the testing done out in the uh, New Mexico wilderness? It's just a poosh. It's this white light. Poosh. And then the mushroom cloud. It was the white light. Just poosh. And everybody in the posse. Everybody is flat on the ground. And he fell to the ground, verse 4. And he heard a voice say to him, Saul, 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 why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? By the way, this is not, he's not saying this is the Lord God. That's just, sir. Who are you, sir? And the voice responds, I am Jesus, whom you, the Greek is emphatic, you are persecuting. Now, verse 6, get up. The voice continues to speak. Get up and go into the city. And you'll be told what you must do. Goodbye. Gone. That's it. What happens? Ooh. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. Saul later tells this story and he says, everybody's flat on the ground. So they have gotten up now. They're up. And Saul, where is Saul? The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound. They heard the Greek word is actually the voice, but they did not see anyone. Verse 8, now the man for whom this nuclear flash has taken place pushes himself on that rocky road. He pushes himself up, finally staggers to his feet. But when he opens his eyes, uh, but did he, his eyes could see nothing. So they led him by the hand. Obviously, they're close to Damascus to do this. They led him by the hand into Damascus. And verse 9, for three days he was blind and did not eat. He did not drink anything. Three tortured days of pitch black. Nothing but my thoughts. Nothing but my mind. And Stephen's. Last prayer. God, forgive him. Three days of that. I tell you what, you'd be ready. You'd be ready for anybody to visit you. And sure enough, that's what happens here. Verse 10 in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. His name means the Lord is gracious. Yahweh is gracious. And the Lord called to him in a vision. Hey, Ananias. 
Saul, he has to call twice to get his attention. With Ananias, just one call. Ananias. Ananias recognizes it's Jesus calling him. Once you get used to the voice of the Lord in your heart, you know. Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. Verse 11, the Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. Isn't it great, ladies and gentlemen, when God is after you, when God is hot on your trail, He already knows your house address. Hallelujah. He doesn't have to go on Google and find you. He has the address on the tip of his tongue. He says, go to that address. By the way, Straight Street is still in Damascus today. You go to Straight Street. You find Judah's house. And you ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. Oh, by the way, I need to tell you this, Ananias. He's just had a vision. And in the God is very sweet and gracious. He gives further instructions by tangentially pointing it out. Oh, by the way, he's had a vision, Ananias. And in the vision, he saw a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore him to sight. Time out, time out. Are you talking about this, Ananias? Are you talking about this, Ananias? From Damascus. I am. But then you're not talking about Saul. Maybe Saul of Bethlehem or Saul of Jerusalem. But you're not talking about Saul of Tarsus, are you? I am. Verse 13, Lord, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your people in Jerusalem. And word on the street is he's come here with the authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. You can't be serious. I am. Go. I tell you what, when you get to go, when you finally get to go, there's only one choice if you're a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've got to go. You've got to go. Go. This man is a chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Goodbye. Gone. Then Ananias went. There it is. He went to the house. I want to tell you something. What do you suppose his pulse rate is right now? He knows this is the killer. The young adult killer. Don't you suppose he's at about 120 beats a minute, maybe 140? He finds that address and goes inside. He said, you have a Saul of Tarsus here. Hey, how'd you know? I need to see him. He walks into the room. There's a blind man sitting there. A man is blind. He can't move. He's in that chair. He's sitting. And Ananias comes walking up to him. And isn't this beautiful? Placing his hands on Saul. Look at if Jesus said you're safe, you're safe. And he put his hands, he put his hands down on the killer. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul. Ananias becomes Saul's first post-conversion friend. And he called him a brother. Isn't that great? He called him a brother. He didn't say, hey you! He said, Brother Saul. Brother the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, the Lord has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And in that instant, something like scales, white, flaky substance trickling down Saul's cheeks out of his eyes. And he could see again and he got up. And the first thing he did was, I got to get baptized. I'm not wasting a minute. I don't need food. Get me saved. That's how important baptism is. You can go without your food, but you can't go without being baptized by the water. If you haven't been baptized by the water, my friend, you've got a huge chapter in your life coming up. Don't put it off. The greatest Christian in the history 
of Christianity, his first response is, get me to water and baptize me. And Ananias baptized him just as you saw it here, in the water, down under, and back out again. And after taking some food, verse 19, after his baptism, he regained his strength. Then I love this, because here's the after. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. Can you imagine people walking in the room and saying, Are you really? Tell me. No, I am. I am. And at once, Saul, look at this, verse 20, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. The only place in the book of Acts you'll find that phrase, Son of God, because it's so critical here that, the, that this Jew, this rabbi, is now declaring that Christ is the Son of God. I heard Stephen say he saw him. I met him on the road. He is the Messiah. Whoa. All those who heard in verse 21, whoa, they are astonished. And they ask, hey, isn't, this, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful. I'm telling you, the moment you accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and you begin to testify in his name, you will become more powerful and more powerful. But if you say, well, I'm not quite ready yet, you won't get an ounce of power. The power comes in the act of witnessing, not prior to it. The more you witness, the more power will be unleashed. The more you talk, the more Holy Spirit takes charge. That's what's happening to Saul. And he became more and more powerful. He baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. There it is, ladies and gentlemen, the Damascus Road conversion story of Saul who became Paul. And by the way, Damascus Road now has become a global metaphor. You don't even have to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can say, you know, I had a Damascus Road experience. And everybody knows you're talking about a radical about face in your thinking. Everybody knows Damascus Road now. Thanks to Saul who became Paul. And out of that crisis... One blinding instant and 72 hours of pitch darkness out of that crisis. The most dramatic about face in the history of the church took place. A, an arch enemy of Christ is transformed in 72 hours into the most passionate and devoted follower Jesus has ever had on earth. You may equal Saul. You will never surpass Saul. Young adult. Young man, Saul. Proof enough, by the way, that when you meet Jesus, when you really, truly, personally meet Jesus, you will never be the same again. Never, never, never. Never be the same again. And once you've met Jesus, oh boy, you've got to talk. You have to tell the story. You can't keep it to yourself. Watch Paul. Now, what I'm going to do. Obviously, Paul has shared his testimony hundreds of times in the course of the history of these 20 years in the book of Acts. Obviously. Dr. Luke goes and records it three times. Rather repetitious, but he's trying to tell us, look, this is important. You've got to tell your story. So we've got the story three times. I'm going to go to those three stories right now with you, and I want to show you there, tucked away in those stories, are some very simple instructions that will enable you to tell your story just as powerfully, just as effectively as Saul did. All right? So get, get your study guide out. You got your study guide? Pull it out. Ushers, let's make sure that everybody here gets uh, these simple instructions on how to tell your own story. Hold your hand up if you don't have a study guide. Ushers, all the way up to the back of the balcony in the overflow room. Hold your hand up. 
And those of you watching on television, we're delighted to have you. Let me put our website on the screen for you and you can find the same study guide. There it is, www.pmchurch.tv. Go to that website. You're looking for the series Prime Time. This is part five of Prime Time. You're looking for the teaching entitled Turning Your Story into His Story, which, of course, is the word history. History is his story. Two words put into one. Turning your story into his story. And when you click on study guide right there, you'll have the same one we have. All right. Now, get your study guide out. We're not going to write in it just yet. I'm going to do this very quickly. So have your pen ready to go. Let's do these in three stories. These are three times Paul shares his testimony. My story number one. You know what they said about Paul? I love this. They said, you know what they said? Whenever Paul showed up in town, there was either a revival or a riot. And that's the gospel truth. I'm telling you, wherever this guy goes, he is so radically devoted to Christ that they're either going to have a big revival in the church or there's going to be a riot in that city. This story is about the riot. There is a huge riot. I want you to go to chapter 21. Chapter 21, my story number one, because there's a, there's a truth tucked away. You learn this truth. You'll know how to tell your own story. Keep this little study guide with you, and eventually you'll have your own story written up. Okay, we're going to Acts chapter 21. Now, he's come back from his third missionary tour. I mean, that's, he's been all over the Mediterranean, particularly Asia Minor. He's come back. He's brought some Gentile converts with him. They've become believers in the Most High God. He's gone to the temple... You've got to understand this about the temple in Jerusalem. There's an outer court for Gentiles. Then there's a court for women. Then there's a court for men. Some Jews from Asia Minor see Saul. Now, Paul, they recognize him. They're nemesis. And he's here. They saw him a moment ago out on the street with a, Jew, with a Gentile convert. They assume he's taken that Gentile convert all the way in to the sacred court of the men. And they explode. It may have been trumped up. I have no idea. But they explode. And they say, men and brothers, did you see what this guy has just done? He's desecrated our temple. And boy, just like that, there is a riot. All right. Pick it up here. And uh, they are tearing Paul to pieces, by the way. They are tearing him when the Roman centurion and his guard, they come racing in to deliver whoever this He has no idea who it is. He thinks it's an Egyptian. It's not. Turns out he's a Roman citizen, Paul is, and he's speaking the language of the centurion. And as they're taking him up in chains up the stairs to the barracks, Paul says to the centurion, do you mind if I say a word to this crowd? And when he heard him speak in his own tongue, he said, I didn't know you could... Can I say a word? He said, you may. So Paul turns around halfway up the, to the barracks and he addresses the rabble. They are furious. And now here's where we pick it up. All right. Let's pick it up um, right there in chapter 22. Now, the last line of chapter, four, chapter 21, verse 40. Having received the commander's permission. All right, here we go. Paul stood on the steps and he motioned to the crowd when they were all silent. You can just see it happening. He said to them in Aramaic. That's their, that's their tongue. He said to them in Aramaic, brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. And when they heard, them, heard him speaking... To them in Aramaic, they became... Then Paul said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under the great Rabbi Gamaliel. I was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. And boom, here goes his testimony. We're not even going to read it because it's a repetition of what we've already just read in Acts 9. But you know what he does? He tells them, here was my life 
before I met Jesus. Here's how I met Jesus. And now here is my life today. He is going just fine until he makes the mistake of using the word Gentile. And the moment he says Gentile, the place, they, they, they read the riot act all over again. And the guards whisk him away. It's, it's, this guy's lethal, whoever he is. All right. My story number one, write it down. Here we go. My story number one. What do I learn from this? Keep it simple. Write it down. Keep it simple. Very simple story. I'm going to tell you where I was born. I'm going to tell you where I grew up. I'm going to tell you how I met Jesus. And now here's what's happening. Very simple. Keep it simple. Keep your pen moving. Let your story be a simple timeline that, that includes my life before I met Jesus, how I met Jesus, my life after meeting Jesus. Listen, folks, there's nothing erudite. There's nothing fancy or complicated, highfalutin. No, 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 no. You already have these three components. What your life was before Jesus, how you met Jesus, and now your life after Jesus, after walking with Jesus. Weave them together and you have your story. And you can turn your story into his story. You can turn your story into his story doing it just like Paul. All right, that's story number one. Keep it simple. Here goes story number two. The very next day. I love this story. This is in chapter 22. So the guy, so the centurion says, okay, listen, I've got to figure out what, 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 are the, what are the religious charges against this uh, holy man? I'm going to convene the Sanhedrin and uh, I'll take Paul down there and they can cross-examine him. So Paul is taken in chains to the Sanhedrin. Now, these are his colleagues. Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin before he became a Christian. These are his colleagues. He knows them all. They know who he is. Don't, don't play dumb with me. You know who I am. But he knows he not, he's not going to get a hearing here. They'll nail him. They will kill him. And he's worried for his life, and I would be too. And so Paul does a masterful, a brilliant piece of strategy. He takes his life story and reduces it to a single sentence. And he says, let's try this. Because, you see, there are two groups here. They're the Sadducees. These are the liberals. No resurrection, no angels, no nothing. Then over here are all the Pharisees. Paul's a Pharisee. All the Pharisees, yes, there are angels. Yes, there is a resurrection. And Paul realizes, I've got to split this court and split it fast. And so he stands before him with his chains on his wrist. And he said, men and brethren, I'm here to tell you that I'm on trial because I am a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And I believe in the resurrection. And just like that, everybody who had been prepared to lynch him, half of the group said, hey, time out. We, hey, hey, we did. this guy's one of us. And there is a roaring controversy now because everybody's stepping up the plate and saying, you know what? Please, this guy, there's nothing wrong with it. We find no, what's the problem? Why is he arrested anyway? The Sadducees won him, but Paul split the court. In fact, it's so bad. <laughs> you drop down here to uh, 23, verse 10. 23, verse 10. The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces. The Sadducees won him and the Pharisees won him. So he sends the troops in. He's out. Okay, there's, there's my story number two. That's it. One line. One line. Write it down. Keep it short. My story number two, keep it short. What do I get from this story? Keep it short. First one, keep it simple. Simple. Number two, keep it short. Keep your pen, keep your pen moving. To defend your faith by telling your story, come on, you don't need a long testimony. In fact, jot this down. Some suggest that you can do it in less than 100 words. Keep it short. Ah. My story number three. Only three of these. Here's number three. Paul can no longer be entrusted to the temple hierarchy. It's clear they're going to kill him. Paul realizes he has no hope with appealing to the Jews. And so Paul is taken up to Caesarea by the Roman guard, kept in a, in a prison in Caesarea, which is still in Palestine. And finally, Paul says, the only way I'm going to get out of here alive is if I appeal to Caesar. 
And so he says, I exercise my rights as a Roman citizen. I appeal to Caesar, please. To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you will go. Now, Roman gets that. You get it. Just a privilege and a prerogative. But Festus, the Roman governor, doesn't know what to do with this guy. I mean, the religious hierarchy wants him executed. I can't find anything wrong with him. Ah, I have your highness, King Herod Agrippa II. I'm going to have the king come. And so he invites the king. Great pomp and ceremony. He invites the king with his wife, Bernice. You see, Agrippa, this is a brilliant move on Festus's part. Agrippa is the great-grandson of Herod the Great through the Jewish wife of Herod the Great. So there's a little bit of Jew, Jewish blood, in Herod Agrippa. This is perfect. But Herod Agrippa is strictly loyal only to Rome. So he has a man who can represent both sides. Now, listen, O king, you listen carefully now. I'm going to have this man talk. Give me something to put in the legal document that sends him to Caesar. I've got to have something. The king says, bring him in. And they bring him in. Where is this, 26? They bring him in. 26, verse 1, then Agrippa said to Paul, okay, you go. You have permission now to speak for yourself. And you know what Paul does? Brilliant. He adjusts his testimony to fit his audience. Watch what he does. When he's talking to the Jews on the barrack stairs, no mention, no mention of Gentile until he slipped right at the end. Why? Because that's only inflamed them. When he's talking to the Jews, he mentions Ananias, a holy and devout Jew living in Damascus. But when he's in front of the Gentiles, a room full of Gentiles now, no mention of Ananias. No mention of Ananias. And instead, he weaves into the Damascus Road moment, Jesus saying, on the road, I'm sending you to the Gentiles. Why has he changed his story? It's, it's true, but he's changed it to adapt to his audience. And he wants the Gentiles. He wants their souls. And, souls. and so he says, I'll talk to you about Gentiles. God cares about Gentiles. See? It's brilliant. What did he do? Here's the third point. My story number three. Write it down. Keep it suitable. You know how you put a suit on when you go to one place? Then you get another suit of clothes, you go somewhere else. You put on another suit of clothes when you go somewhere else. That's what it means to be suitable. You've got to fit the occasion. Keep it suitable. If you're, te- if you're sharing your testimony with a roommate down uh, or, a, or a, uh, a friend down the hall in the dorm, you're going to put this, this suit of clothes on. If you're in an airplane and you're sitting beside a Fortune 500 executive, you're going to put this suit of clothes on. If you're writing an email to somebody who said, I need help, can you help me? And you're going to tell your story in that email. You're going to put the suit on that's appropriate to the person you're talking to. Keep your testimony suitable. You can change your clothes and the story is still the same. That's what Paul does. And when he's with the Pharisees, I'm a Pharisee. One line story now. Keep it suitable. Keep it simple. Keep it short. Keep it suitable. And finally, how can I do it? Here we go. Bill Hybels, very helpful book. Just walk across the room. Which, by the way, they have on sale over here at the ABC Christian Bookstore just across the street. So you can go over there, pick up the book if you'd like. Hybels shares some very practical counsel on how to write up your own story and then share it. I mean, this guy has listened to stories because he's been coaching people how to be contagious Christians for years. He's heard hundreds of these bumbling, stumbling Christian testimonies. And in all candor, he makes this point. I've got to put the words on the screen for you. He makes this point. He said, some of these testimonies are so annoying, exhausting, and circuitous. I have thought to myself, and I hear his words, I put it on the screen. I have thought to myself, if I were a person living far from God and had even a tinge of interest in this thing called Christianity, after hearing your story, I think I'd recommit myself to paganism. (laughs) You didn't talk me into a thing. I don't want whatever you got. If that's your story, whoo. So Hybel says, listen, let me help you. Let me give you four critiques. 
Four critiques. He said, this is the problem I see in some testimonies. Don't let this be your problem. Criticism number one. Write it down. Criticism number one. Long-windedness. All right? Our testimony, keep writing, ought not to be longer than three minutes. I've got mine down to just about a hundred words. Pay attention to the other person's body language. Look at if they're looking all over the room, if they're, you know, their arms are crossed, that means they're not listening. Arms crossed, that means I'm shut off to you now. Watch the body sign. You don't have to finish the testimony. It's not like you get a little extra star in your crown if you can get it all the way through. No, you're supposed to be thoughtful. You don't have to share the rest of the story. I'll tell you some other time. Keep your story short enough, jot this down to allow the other person to ask questions. Hey, tell me about that. I mean, what, what really happened? You can't tell it all in 100 words, but you don't need to. You want to wet. Holy Spirit, wet an appetite. I want to know more. Okay, criticism number two. Write it down. Fuzziness. The Bible says the only thing worse than a long story is a long story that is incoherent. Man, I, where, where are you going with this thing? Where are you going with this? <laughs> I don't know. Keep your story simple. I like this counsel. Containing one clear plot line. Write it down. One clear plot line that appropriately conveys the heartbeat of your faith journey. See, there's a key word about your past. There's a key word now that needs to explain your, your life since meeting Jesus. You, you'll figure it out. I'll show you in just a minute. Uh, criticism number three. Religionese. Bible's right. It takes a lot of work to expunge insider jargon from your story, but it's worth it. I was amazed. I wrote mine out. I was amazed. I'm still talking to a Christian. That's what I'm doing. Make this story so that it's heard by a non-Christian. You can't say to a non-Christian, listen, when the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit came into my heart, He set me on fire. Like, what? How'd they get it out? You know, that was set me on fire. What's that mean? It means nothing. To a secular person, pfft, nothing. No, my life changed. Well, then tell me how it changed. Then you tell them. All right? Watch out for this religion ease. Okay, crit- final criticism. Number four, superiority. Bible's writes, there may be no quicker way to send an unbeliever to the hills than to play the piety card. Since I've become so good and so perfect, and I sure feel sorry for you, but if you come to my Jesus, you can become the same way as me. You, you get the point. Drop it. Drop it. If superiority is your intent, you'll never reach anybody anyway. Because it isn't your story that reaches a soul. It's Jesus' story tucked away in your story. That's the whole point. All right, four critiques. They're good. Hang on to that little study guide. Now, to protect us from these four common pitfalls, you and I need to remember this. Look at Madison Avenue. They're selling everything. Boy, the economy is so bad. They're, they're just hoping you buy anything at all for Christmas. It's bad. But the way Madison Avenue has learned to sell effectively is to do a, a before and an after. Have you ever seen those, weight, those diet loss, those, those, those weight loss uh, diet advertisements? <laughs> Have you seen those? They're crazy. I mean, so I go on the internet. I say, okay, I've got to find a real one. So I went on the internet, and I, I came to an internet article, Getting Healthy the Geeky Way. All right, I said, I, I'd be interested in that. Well, because right there, sure enough, look at this, before and after. Whoa, I said, I've got to try this method. So here it was. This is directly from the internet. First, the before picture. Look at that. Isn't he a handsome dude? Look at that. (laughs) Look at that after. Look at that after. I tell you what. Can you really go from there to there? Are you serious? Is this some kind of trick? No. This really is me. It is. Man, I'm the before. But here's the point, ladies and gentlemen. I'm the before. I share your before. And I want to now experience your after. In fact, would you write that down, please? Write it down. 
Because when you share the same before with somebody else, you are seeking the same after. Nothing is more persuasive than the testimony, it worked for me. Show me that before and after picture again. Oh, boy. It really did work for you, didn't it? I want the same thing to happen to me. Guys, that's how they make billions of dollars. Because we believe the testimony before and after. And when you're telling the truth, God wins. So here's what you've got to do. You've got to know what your before is. I hope you haven't been a Christian so long that you can't remember what your before was. What was it? Fear? What was it? Guilt? What was it? Self-destruction? What was it? Ego? There's somebody on this planet that has your before. And who needs to hear how you got to this after. I mean, I look just like you before. How do I get to this after? You've got to tell them. You know what? I was filled with fear till I met Jesus. And when Jesus came, when Jesus took over my life and I began to trust myself to Him, you know what? I, it's, I got peace today. Really? You can go from fear to peace? Yeah, look at me. I'm living proof. Before I met Jesus... I'm telling you, I felt so guilty. I was practicing. I was practicing a life that I couldn't even go to sleep at night. I had to medicate myself to get to sleep. I felt so guilty. And then I met Jesus. And I found out that you can get forgiveness. And you can be accepted by the God of the universe. And He has brought me a sense of accepting peace. Oh, let me tell you something. I was self-destructive. Man, you don't know all the stuff I did before. I was self-destructive. And then I met Jesus. He found me. And now my heart is growing in healthy, emotional ways I could never have dreamed possible. I was egotistical before. I was depending on my own achievement. I was certain that I could get there by my accomplishments. And then I met Jesus. And I learned the truth. You know what? You really, you really need the gift of humble service. And God's still working on me. But I'm telling you what, I'm finding that the life with Jesus is so much You see what it is, guys? This is not rocket science. It's what Paul did. Before I was this, then I met Jesus on the Damascus Road, and now I'm this. And he adapted it to fit the needs of whoever he was sharing his story with. Isn't that great? Bill Hybels will end with this. Bill Hybels, look at that quotation. He puts it succinctly. It's worth sharing your heart and soul to firm up the three-pronged foundation of your story. Here's a little review for you. The key word or concept that describes who you were before you met Christ. I was filled with fear. Then the fact that you came to a relationship with Jesus. But then Jesus found me. I have begun a friendship with Him. And now the key word or concept that describes who you are after walking with Christ for a time. My fear has been exchanged by peace. I can't even explain it to you. But when I put my head on the pillow at night, I fall straight asleep. Something has happened to me. And my friend, it can happen to you too. Same Jesus can do it for you. You see, the before and after. Hey, let me tell you, the greatest before and after in all of Christendom is probably Paul, but here's the second greatest. I once was lost, but now am found was blind, but now I see. That's before and after. That's John Newton, the slave trader, who said, my life before I met Jesus, I was a mess. I was lost and blind, but I met Christ, and now I can see because I'm found. That's it. Ladies and gentlemen, that's it. This is not some kind of you got to get a PhD in how to give a testimony installment. No. All you need is to have met Jesus. If you haven't met Jesus, 
then there's a new story just waiting to get told. If you haven't met Jesus, oh my, this may be the best day of your life. But before I get to that, I'm praying this morning in my little study back at home. Everything's done. Just thinking. And the Holy Spirit said, Hey, Dwight, you forgot, you forgot a key verse. I said, You're right. How could I have missed that? It's not in the study guide. We got together with our PowerPoint producer and he produced it for me. Here's the verse. I put it on the screen for you. Look at this. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. The generation living at the end of time. The young and the not so young triumphed over the dragon by the blood of the Lamb. And most people stop the verse right there. Scribble this down in your study guide. Revelation 12, verse 11. Most people stop the verse right there. But there's a second half to that. It's not only Calvary that wins. Calvary can only win when people see a before and after picture as a result of Calvary. Calvary is not enough. Calvary says, I need some human witnesses in the defense Stand to tell the truth about what I've done in their lives. They overcame the dragon by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. If you don't have a testimony, the Holy Spirit is about to give you a testimony. It's been a long time since you've had a testimony. i got some good news for you. It doesn't matter how long it's been. You say, Dwight, I've never told my story to anybody. You know why I haven't told my story to anybody? Because I didn't have a Damascus Road experience. I grew up in a, I grew up in a happy home. My parents never divorced. I never took drugs. I just, you know, I've just been trying to be faithful all my life. I have no great story. My dear friend, that is a story that God needs. Because there are people out there just like you. They didn't do the whole nine yards. They just haven't found Jesus. They're living a great life. But something's missing. And you can come along and say, hey, you don't have to do drugs in order to find Jesus. You don't have to sleep with every woman in the city in order to find Jesus. You can just have a hunger in your heart realizing, like the rich young ruler, that when you go to bed at night, something doesn't feel quite right. I'm telling you why you don't feel quite right. Because you don't have Jesus yet. I found Jesus. I kind of grew into it. But the closer I've come to know Him, the more I realize without Jesus, this world is shot. I wish you'd find the Jesus I found. See how simple that is? You don't need some horrendous story. You just need a story. You just need to find Jesus. This is a strategic weapon for you. You wield this right. Your before and after picture will go into the Internet. It will go around the world. Your little world, your office world, your class world, your dormitory world. Your story will go through your neighborhood world. Your story, as simple as it is, before and after, is waiting to be told. There are some people on this planet who will only be reached by your story. The other stories won't touch them. So the Holy Spirit's going to make sure that somebody who's in need of your story crosses your path this next week. If you say to the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, I'd like my life to help you. Give me somebody with whom I can share my story. If you'll pray that prayer next week, you be patient. You be patient. Somebody will cross your path who needs your story. It's that simple. We're talking strategy now. We're talking a generation that's approaching the edge of crisis. We're talking about it's the right time. 
to tell your story and let it be transformed into his story.